welcome to DemonCast Season 2, Episode 4, The Case of the Overdose on Philosophy. Chris. I'm Sarah. And yeah, chapter four, trepanning. 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 <laughs> Straight in with the title of the chapter there. Um, how are you? I am pretty good, actually. Yeah, back at work. I mean, that's less great because it's a weird world out there. But yeah, on the whole, I'm, I'm doing all right. Good. I mean, on the latest round of COVID-19 lockdown updates, Britain has sort of eased its lockdown a bit, and much to the confusion of the public, because exactly what that meant wasn't really explained very mm-hmm. clearly, and it took them about a week to clarify half of it. But, you know, uncertainty is the new certainty. So Yay. we have been reliably told by our government, and it's up to us. <laughs> Stay alert. Yeah. I'm doing OK, thank you for asking. <laughs> my bad <laughs> the problem is I know how you are I forget that we're doing a podcast and that the, the audience just haven't been with, with us yes yes they're there in spirit all mm-hmm. of the time I'm, yeah we've built a terrarium well, you've built a terrarium yeah. I, I've kind of watched you do it you've half funded my building of a terrarium yes. for some snacks yay you know we're gonna get our own little demons Very maybe exciting. we'll do a little special facebook live with them when they arrive but they're still at the breeder at the moment making sure they're healthy and eating but that's exciting for us yeah literally the most exciting thing that's happened to me in weeks i think at least the most different thing that's happened in weeks yeah that's the thing there's a lot of same 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 things happening yeah it kind of reminds you that life in a sense is repetitive though but we try to ameliorate that repetitiveness by doing things that we tell ourselves are different like going to the pub. Oh, way to be cheerful. I know. Every day is exactly the same as Trent Reznor once sang. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, chapter four, trepanning, reference entitled to the uh, practice we were introduced to in book one of people drilling holes in their heads for spiritual reasons. Yep. Also allegedly what happened to the alleged head of Stanislaus, allegedly Grumman. Allegedly. <laughs> Which I think we're now beginning to form the opinion is maybe not Grumman mm. or something like that. Before we actually start, mm-hmm. I just want to say that within this chapter, we get like this very, very rare moment of morality from one of the kids. More on that mm. later. Um, and it got me to thinking about how amoral the children have been portrayed in the book so far, particularly yeah. the beginning of this book. You know, Lyra just kind of does whatever the fuck she wants. Will kills and threatens to kill again. Even the two kids that we met in Chittagazi are mostly concerned with ice cream and going on adventures and not really worried that much, it seems, about what happens to the adults. Yeah, but aren't kids generally quite amoral? Because isn't that the point of kids, is that they are learning? Well, that's what I was going to ask. Do you think it's just generally Pullman writing kids the way he thinks kids are amoral, which they kind of are? Mm. Or do you think that he wants us to see people developing morality even though it's not under a religious influence? Because much is made by religious people that without religion there is no morality. It's probably a little bit of both, to be honest. It's 
probably shown the kind of natural progression of someone changing from being a child to becoming an adult and developing morality via the people that they meet and the things that they experience. And yeah, like you said, minus the influence of um, kind of religious dogma and things. Yeah. So here's another uh, here's another thing then. Since this chapter is full of half-explained philosophy and science, hence <laughs> the um, title of the episode, do you think that children learn morality from people around them, or do you think it's something that people innately develop based on kind of social instinct? I think it's a little bit of both to really worm out of that question. Because I think morality can be based on kind of personal traits that you have. I think we've talked about this on here before, but my fear of like basically getting told off and being in trouble helps me or kind of guides my morality in some ways. I am scared of doing certain things because I hate the idea of being naughty or bad. And that's kind of almost a part of my personality. But is the framework of bad dictated by nurture, by things that you learn? Yeah, because my parents probably taught me those things of being so kind of thing. Do you think you have an innate reluctance to be bad but need to be told what bad is? Well, I hope not. <laughs> I'd like to think I've got a fairly... I mean, not just you, but you, the collective humanity, of which I am clearly not a part. I think it change, It does change over time because I think when you're younger, you do have this idea of... You go through phases, you go through the sort of amoral phase and then you go through a phase where you, you have an idea of what you think is right and wrong and then you kind of, as you get older, which is probably the, the phase I'm in sort of now, is that you realise that it's all a bit wibbly-wobbly and things are very dependent on the situation that you're in yeah. and, yeah, personal circumstances and... Yeah, it's all a bit amorphous, I think. Because we know that children's brains essentially don't resemble adult brains until they're around eight years old, in the sense that it's at eight when the final kind of bits of the brain develop, the social parts, the parts we probably assume have the most to do with morality. Mm. So why the fuck are all these older than that children in Philip Pullman's books so amoral? Even though that's the age where those final pieces get put together it doesn't mean that they're then fully complete sorted done humans no once that's happened you still have a lot of learning to do and it depends on your circumstances so say for instance lyra she has been allowed to kind of do whatever the hell she wants so i don't know if she's been allowed to as such i think she's done it in spite of people trying to stop her Like at Jordan running around the roofs and all the rest of it, it just seemed like the scholars couldn't stop her. She just ran rings around them. Yeah, but I guess there's a difference in morality of being naughty, like running along a roof to, you know... Killing people. Like... Will did. (laughs) But we see a bit of Will's reasoning on that later on, so I'm sure we'll kind of come to discuss that. Yeah, and that's that's sort of what made me want to ask that question first, is there's just a great deal of amoral children in these Mm -hmm. books. I suppose it's a useful plot device, given that he's having kids killing people and Mm. running away from home and doing all sorts of stuff they probably shouldn't. I think it's just more interesting as well, because if the the kids were not well-behaved and good all the time and all just did the right thing, that's not particularly realistic. No. We aren't 100% moral or immoral most of the time. We kind of run through different shades of it, don't we? We do. And mavericks change the world. Eh? 
Oh, that's... as in, I literally thought of Maverick as in <laughs> Top, Top Gun. Gun. <laughs> no, I was I like, what? I know the... you really like Top Gun, but what's he got to do with this? I wouldn't go as far as to say I really like Top Gun. I... No, it's true, I do actually. I'm just trying to sound cool. I do really like Top Gun. But, you know, it's people that go against the grain that change things, isn't it? You can't make a difference if you won't dare to be different, etc. Was this Chris's thought of the day? Yeah, I've no idea what's happening. I had very broken sleep last night, so, you know, expect many non sequiturs from me. Yeah. But back to his dark materials. The story proper. <laughs> so trepanning and morality, both important in this chapter, mm-hmm. which opens with Will calling the lawyers, basically, that he has found the details of amongst his mum's papers, basically wants to know about his dad. And in this conversation, it's revealed pretty quickly that money is paid via the lawyers to his mum on a Mm. three-monthly basis. We also learn about the importance of GDPR. Which is the general data protection. Yeah, prior to its actual bringing in. But that lawyer does not want to discuss those details well, they, over the phone. They did have data protection in the 90s, but the new GDPR yeah. is a, a reworking of that for the internet age. Look, let me have the joke, all right? Sorry. It was it was my bit. <laughs> it was at your bit. Yeah. Sorry. But dum There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Won't tell him anything over the phone, or at least not anything in detail. But after kind of Will pushes a little bit, he agrees to tell him kind of where his dad is because it's a matter of public record. And the truth is... Then I know. Yeah, his dad vanished on this Arctic expedition somewhere near a research station in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, he's trying to goad Will to come to the office if he yeah. wants to know more. And Will is a bit wary of this because he's not sure whether the lawyer is trying to trap him into being caught by the police or something because he thinks by now surely the police are looking for him missing child, dead people at his home, etc. Something that comes up later on, it discusses his sort of, his espionage tactics even more. Mm. And I'd like to put a pin in that for later because I started to wonder about how Will knows so much about espionage. We sort of keep seeing it Mm. coming up and up again. Um, But we can talk about that later when we find out more about his subterfuge and espionage skills i'm actually going to be taking notes from lyra and will in this chapter on generally how to get into places and do things when you're not meant to be there well lyra um does some interesting things later on to sneak into oxford university into their campus and it is i'll talk about that later as well god there are so many cliffhangers already um it's (laughs) it's it's a technique used by the special forces that we've mentioned before in passing at least Mm -hmm. and i wonder whether Sir Pullman of Philip did some studying on how spies and special forces operators and things like that work, or whether this is just he's watched too many Bond movies. I don't know. Actually, Bond is the complete opposite of the way those people operate. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> he makes himself very yeah, obvious very, and well-known. Yeah, it's quite hard to miss the fact that James Bond is uh, probably a spy. Mm. Anyway, Will won't go to the lawyer's office. And he sort of tries to misdirect the lawyer as well by saying he can't come because he's going to Nottingham. Um, which, for those of us not from Britain, Nottingham's really close to where we live, actually, and it's quite yeah. a lot further north than where we're actually I was going to say, is. I mean, good one on the quick-thinking excuse, but bad in terms of, like, why on earth are you getting a bus? Is there even a bus? You're not just getting on your local bus to go from Oxford to Nottingham. No, you're not. Um, it's quite a long way, but I think that's the point. And there, there are definitely, as someone who's travelled extensively on the coach <laughs> networks of Britain, there are definitely 
routes from Oxford to Nottingham. Well, yeah, I know you can get there, but I just mean, like, not on a little local... Not on a local bus, no. But, I mean, that's the point, isn't it? It's a long way to go, so he's trying to misdirect them. Yeah. I say long way to go. People that don't live in England would laugh at the distance. It's paltry. <laughs> I mean, Britain is smaller than most states in America, but <laughs> for us, it's a long way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, eventually, yeah, he runs out of money for the phone call. That puts an end to that. And he actually has a little thought there for a moment that he wants to speak to his mum but he knows that if he calls her he's gonna want to go home so he's got to hold off on talking to her so he doesn't get pulled back mm-hmm. so he yeah. writes her a postcard instead he which does is nice. yeah something that ends the phone call with the lawyer though the money runs out on the payphone. do you remember pay phones we just wanted to put that in there <laughs> such a nostalgic moment yeah so once he's, once he's done all that, he kind of takes in his, his surroundings and realises that he's kind of in quite an exposed place and this sort of shopping area and that a lot of people can see him. Um, so he needs to disappear. Mm-hmm. And it's at this point we get a little bit more about Will's ability to kind of make himself unseen and a comparison with what we saw Serafina Picala do in Chapter 2. Yeah, chapter two, Among the Witches. So, yeah, when she sort of makes people ignore her using mental magic, not magic magic, the confused state of magic in his dark materials, but she kind of makes people unsee her. Will sort of is going to do the same thing, but in a much more down-to-earth way. Mm -hmm. So he pops into a shop and buys a notepad so that if anyone sees him out and about, they'll think he's doing a school project. don't forget the clipboard as well. Oh, the clipboard, yeah. Yeah. I thought this was genius. So did I. I I wonder if this happens in other countries, but in England it really is quite common to see school-aged children wandering around with clipboards, nervously goading each other to survey strangers in the street. That's kind of what you do, particularly for geography class for some reason. Oh, see, we never had to speak to people. It always didn't. no, it'd always be just stuff like going and having a look around and drawing pictures of things or mm. you know, looking at um historical signs that had information on or things like uh, that. Because, you know, talking to strangers when you're a kid is a bit eh. Well, you see, I went to school before the mass pedo panic, because you're yeah. you're a, a good five years younger than me. Mm. Um, so maybe people were a bit more scared of paedophiles by the time you went to school. But but for me, yeah, we'd often go out and survey people, like, go and find out how people got to work today. So you'd go at lunch hour <laughs> and sort of hang around in the street and nervously say, excuse me, I'm doing a school project. <laughs> and, you know, survey them. <laughs> um, but you see that in, in the city now. I've seen kids do that. I've even been approached by them. And it's quite funny how nervous they are. Oh, bless them. (laughs) So, yeah, so he uses that technique. Yeah. Like I say, very impressed. If I ever find myself in a similar situation, I'm sure I will actually not do that because... I mean, I don't think anyone is ever going to wonder why you're wandering around not at school. This is true. You're an adult. I don't think you need that sort of social camouflage. (laughs) But it is an interesting thing that um, particularly the intelligence services, like... If you're trying to hide, you don't try to hide because that's really obvious. Instead, you look like you belong. Yeah. A reason for being there. Social camouflage. Yeah. Uh, give yourself the appearance of legitimacy, essentially. It's kind of like, so when I go urbexing, or, which I haven't done for a long time, one of the tricks that you can use is to dress like a builder or a workman in a high-vis jacket because people just assume that they're supposed to be wherever they are. Mm. The power of high-vis is real. 
you, you rather than being unseen you make yourself very visible yeah but very uh obviously supposed to be there yeah meanwhile lyra's gone off alone yeah she's also trying to find somewhere a bit more quiet and um, but for her it's to consult the alethiometer i've realized across the episode i just switched between alethiometer and alethiometer now just at will oh i realized that while we were covering the tv show and i gave myself the get out of jail free card then of saying i'll just pronounce it however i want in the moment yeah and i'm gonna do that again later with dust because we we end up getting shit loads of names for dust in this chapter so you know i'll use those interchangeably i'm afraid okay yeah warning coming up um <laughs> yeah so lyra at this point much like in the last chapter she's kind of confused by everything she sees but i think what makes it especially odd is the fact that it's this combination of familiarity and the strain. So sort of an uncanny valley situation, really, yeah. isn't it? I mean, she describes Will's Oxford as outlandish. Right. And, and she seems particularly baffled by, like, road markings that have been painted for traffic mm. and traffic signs and lights and things in general. Like, why would anyone paint the road? Yeah. Um, and what does it even mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things that I thought was particularly interesting a real like ooh moment was when um she sees the initials on a piece of stone thinks well they were in my world in oxford the same initials sp for simon parslow and it's like oh does that mean there's a simon parslow in this world does that mean there's a lyra yeah so we, we kind of now we're getting this built up sense that the two worlds are not as divergent as we might think maybe certain aspects mm. of technology have gone different ways but otherwise there could in fact be a lot of similarities mm. um, and it's more the way the societies have developed that's led to the changes rather than there being like an inherent natural difference yeah. beyond the demons of course yeah phil writes that um pan kind of shudders and it kind of creeps lyra out. and i got that same sort of feeling yeah. almost of like oh that's really odd like what if there is another her yeah, and it's, it's going to happen again as well, isn't it? She's going to mm. see even more creepy similarities. But she sees also a diversity that she's not used to. And yes. it specifically says she sees women dressed as men, <laughs> which is probably just women wearing trousers. I think it jeans. does actually say, yeah, yeah trousers. Uh, she sees Africans and even a group of Tartars following their leader, which I think is probably just like a family of people. <laughs> yeah. Um, so well, we... I assumed it meant like following a tour guide. Ah, uh, Yeah. Because they're carrying small black cases, which is probably cameras. Yes. So she's essentially seeing a group of tourists. But we still don't get a a real idea of, like, who Tartars are. I mean, I'm just going to go with the stereotypical, they're Japanese tourists, is what she's seen. So I guess Asian is what the Tartars are, which is something we've thought about before. Tartars are maybe kind Mm. of the, the kind of Eurasian, kind of Eastern Russian, Mongolian. That would kind of... Yeah, I mean, obviously they're not the same people, but to Lyra in this world, she might sort of just assume they're the same because they've got similar physical characteristics. Yeah, that's true. But anyway, foreign people, not a common sight on the streets of Lyra's Oxford, clearly. No, I kind of hadn't ever thought about that before because obviously she talks about people from other places, and but I'd never kind of put it together with the fact that they're not part of the world that she's in. So yeah, to her, it must be quite unusual yeah yeah um apparently so 
It's also strange, she says, to see people without their demons. Like, in yeah. her world, they would be considered ghasts, you know. Yeah. But she comforts herself with this idea that they are inside them. Yeah, like Will. Mm. But it, it takes her a moment to get over the fact that they are, in fact, human. Like, she almost wants them to not be and then has to resign herself to the fact mm. that they are. So this is a really alien world for Lyra. But nevertheless, intrepid Lyra ventures on to find somewhere for an alethiometer reading. Yeah. I like how Phil does get in little, like, humorous bits in here. So she goes to buy a bar of chocolate on her journey and she refers to it as chocolatel. Yeah. And she also pays for it with a £20 note. Yeah, that will give Yeah. And she, she kind of mentions that, like... Um, the man in the shop was from the Indies, so he must not have understood what I said. It's he looks at her strangely strange. for trying to pay with a twenty pound well, note, and using the word chocolatel as well. Mm. So it's completely her; like she's completely misread that situation, and it's actually her that's the the foreigner, as it were, yeah. in that world. So yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. Um, she finds a museum. She comes across a museum. Yeah, it's actually the Oxford University Natural History Museum Ooh. from the description that's given. Yeah. Um, but its grandeur is familiar to her. Like, it's not something that exists in her world, but it looks like it could, is how yeah. it's described. And there are a lot of buildings like that in Oxford with mm. intricate carved stonework and outward signs of opulence. So she goes in because it looks like rich stuff. And rich stuff is what Lyra's after. Yeah. <laughs> and she manages to find her way to the Arctic section. Yeah. She kind of sees different artefacts there that are kind of... They're very um, familiar to her. Yeah. But in particularly odd, I thought, was the Samoyed picture. Mm. And these are the Samoyeds that essentially, in her world, or the Inuits that in her world, kidnapped her and took her to Bolvanger. Yeah. Where she's like, they are the same people. Yeah. And initially it's a bit like, oh, is it just, in general, she's looking at Samoyeds, which I guess are Inuits mm. in our world, and saying, oh, it's the same people. But no, it's specifically the same individual people, she thinks, even down to their sled looking the same and having the same sort of signs of wear on it. And that's how she says she knows the knots because she was intimately familiar with them for hours because she was tied up. Onto the sled, but, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's very weird yeah and and that's that moment again where like the worlds are extremely similar and overlapping in some ways but this is a historical photograph it's in the museum whereas for lyra's world they're current people they're alive now yeah that's the other weird thing is they're also a, a kind of a time difference as well as a could that mean that lyra's world sprang into being after ours and Maybe. that explains the difference in technical development to some extent. Because yeah, we've talked a lot about how they they feel back in time, essentially. Yeah. Um, she does describe it as, or wonder rather, whether it's just one world dreaming of another. Yeah. Which I thought was a really nice description because it does kind of feel like that. There's these weird bits of crossover, but it all just feels a bit kind of odd and confusing. Well, it alludes... And it will do again later. The book alludes to the idea that maybe more of the universe is conscious than we think, mm. which is an oddly pseudo-religious concept for a mm. book so critical of religion, but also is somewhat drawn from, maybe not fringe is the wrong word, but like certain philosophical <laughs> opinions that surround aspects of quantum physics and theoretical physics at the moment. Yeah. She also finds some skulls that have been trepanned and they're listed as Bronze Age skulls. And she asked the alethiometer who the skulls belonged to. 
And as she does this, without knowing it, she's being watched by an old man. Mm. And, and things get... Get a bit odd. Creepy. So, I mean, the alethiometer says that the skulls belong to people that lived about 32,000 years ago and they were effectively like shamans, witch doctors that drilled mm. the holes in their head to let God in, which is, is pretty much the ancient origins of trepanning. Mm. Um, that's what it was all about. But while this is going on, the older gentleman, who's described as powerful looking and... He's wearing a nice suit and he's, he's got a scented hanky in his pocket. Did you he's, notice what he looks like? He looks like Clear Quilty from Lolita. Oh, right. See, because I didn't think of that, but he does. But my my two different things that he looks like, one You're was... You're going to go Jurassic Park. Park. Yeah, yeah, I knew it. <laughs> Hammond. Yeah, he looks like him. And second, um, the man from Del Monte. <laughs> yeah, he said yes. Um, but also Clear Quilty, the worst paedophile in Lolita, which is quite a... Saying something. Title to take. Um, yeah, it, it specifically describes that he's looking at her bare legs and her neck and things yeah. like that. And it's very, it's a very sexual description for a kid's book. I think it's about as far as Phil dared go, yeah. maybe. I made a face, I'm making a face at Chris now, but it was a face that made when I was, I was actually listening to it this time, decided to test out the audiobook option. And yeah, I was like, the bare neck kind of makes sense because she's leaning over, but then it was like, and legs, and I was like, nope. <laughs> yeah, this is this is clearly trying to give a, an older reader the idea that this guy's a little bit perverse. And he mops his brow as well. It's yeah. like, if you're getting sweaty looking at kids, just yeah. all right. And he talks to her as well. Essentially, the conversation is a bit perfunctory. He slates hippies because apparently some people still do trepanning and yeah. that's what he describes as a hippie yeah and he says it's more effective than taking drugs which is a really weird thing to say to a young kid it is isn't it but he can tell that she's interested in trepanning or he thinks she is because she spent so long looking at these skulls mm. and essentially he's trying to get her to come with him because he says that he knows someone who's done trepanning oh i mean it's um, all just and he's, it's a bit like come with me and look at these holes in my skull mm, <laughs> like yeah it also describes his tongue black flickering darting tongue very serpentine, mm, snake-like. Yeah. And another slight touch as well as is he's talking to her, he gets closer to her and his hand brushes hers. Yeah. And I'm like, oh God, unnecessary contact. I mean, I'm particularly funny about contact at the moment anyway. This whole social distancing thing has made me, the concept of being close to anyone is creepy to me right now. Yeah, but particularly... Particularly in this situation. This guy is particularly creepy. Yeah. Um, and Pan is very wary of him. Lyra herself doesn't seem as cautious of him, but Pan is sort of plucking at her from inside her pocket. Begging her to be careful. Yeah. But anyway, she rejects his offer to go and meet this person that he claims to know that's done trepanning. And she uses what is the standard anti-paedophile tactic in the UK and a very good one of saying that she's expected by someone that she's meeting someone. Yeah. Um, and that's great because then, you know, if she's kidnapped, she'll be missed. She's a good way to deter a pedo kidnapping. Gonna do that thing, I think, that we sometimes got told to do, which is just be like, no! As loud as shout no as loud as you can. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good anti-pedo tactics both. Shout no loudly and then say I'm meeting someone yeah. <laughs> or I'm going home. <laughs> so before we kind of move on to what happens next, I just wanted to kind of rewind slightly and say that another thing that Lyra picks up on during this whole exchange is his smell. So he's got this 
hanky thing dipped in perfume that's already been mentioned. But she smells it and says it smells nice. And she says that it reminds her of um, Joffa Ragnarsson, the sort of smell of, like, dung. Perfume over rot, essentially. Yeah, exactly, which gives us an idea of potentially what kind of person we're dealing with as well. He's got this kind of exterior that's very kind of charming and polite and well-dressed, but perhaps something is happening underneath all of that. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. But he gives her his card in case she changes her mind about going with him. All we get to know about him beyond the kind of pervy description is that his first name is Charles, and I really wanted her to look at the card and tell us who he is, but she doesn't. She pockets it, and that's the end of mm-hmm. that. Little, little bit more of a cliffhanger there. Mm-hmm. And then she asks the alethiometer about where she can find a scholar to help her with dust. Yes. And I, I like her little um, conversations with the alethiometer in this chapter because you do get a little bit of a sense of its personality. We've talked about it having a personality before, but she actually kind of explicitly mentions that. I think in actually when she was talking to it before about the schools, she says that sometimes it gives her information she doesn't ask for. Yeah. And this time it answers her a bit more simply. And she says it, you know, it has moods almost that sometimes it will tell her more stuff, sometimes it will be quite the point yeah it directs her to a nearby building um and she reads its mood as it's being quite short with her and then it adds more information that Mm. her main focus now should be helping will and and she's quite pissed off about the idea that this might be about someone other than her yeah Um, so the actual can i can i do the quote at this point just to get it involved you must concern yourself with the boy your task is to help him and find his father Put your mind to that. I mean, that alethiometer is becoming quite eloquent for something that speaks by pointing to pictures. Yeah, and it's <laughs> not just um, telling her that it would be a good idea. It's saying, you must concern yourself with that. Put yeah. your mind to that. It's telling her what she needs to do, mm-hmm. um, rather than just kind of giving passive answers to things. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did like how she was a bit annoyed by that, though, <laughs> yeah. by the idea that this might be Will's go, not hers. Yeah, she's um, like, well, Will was clearly there to help me. Like, yeah, that's why he's what, there. Uh, why, why am I helping him? He's the surf. <laughs> yeah. um, it also gives her another bit of advice, which comes in very handy, which is do not lie to the scholar. Yes. So it's really kind of trying to make sure that she gets the best out of the interaction she's having with people. It's almost playing the role of destiny, isn't it? It's just telling her what she's got to do mm. in full swing. Yeah. The alethiometer is destiny, maybe. Mm. And I'm kind of glad that Phil put that in as a device. We don't have to have the whole plot line of Lyra not telling Mary, Mary everything and, you know, having to slowly figure out what the truth is and all this kind of back it's and forth. Boring. I hate that kind so of thing. Boring. It's a, Mary, incidentally, that Sarah mentioned, Mary Malone. Mm-hmm. That's the scholar she's going to see who we'll meet shortly. It's also Sarah's favourite character. Yeah, I was uh, very excited. I'd kind of forgotten that this was the chapter in which she appears. Yeah. So when I realised it was going to happen, I got really excited. One thing that ruined that excitement was I decided to listen to the audiobook this time. I absolutely hated 
the voice they gave to Mary Malone. And it just really ruined the experience for me because I was just like, who is this woman? Better go back to reading. Yeah, Yeah. I think next time I might might have to because I just didn't get the same kind of feel from it. I think that's the thing about audiobooks is they can be quite dependent on who's doing the reading and things and if they've got the voices right. It's a lot like films as well. It's a person's, to some extent, interpretation of the story rather than what you imagine. Mm. And if it's different than what you imagine, it might well feel disappointing. Mm. Mm. But I think the problem was that the the voice that they'd used was for a woman who sounded really posh. Mm. And, and quite a bit older. Uh, yeah, Mary. a lot older, because it says Mary's meant to be in her sort of late 30s. This woman sounds like she's in her 50s. Yeah. And it just sounded all wrong and kind of a little bit patronising and a little bit sort of... I know I always felt Mary was quite down to earth, so it sort of ruined that for me, so... I mean, I think one of the problems you get with a lot of audiobooks is that the voice actors do affect quite a posh accent. And I think that's because it's partly because it's easy to understand and partly the cultural hangover of BBC English where mm. people who are broadcast in Britain have to speak a certain way. It's, it's kind of a contrived accent that was invented to make inadequate recording equipment of years gone by suitable for purpose essentially so here's a little science engineering watch aside you know we know what bbc english is because we live in britain in america people are probably familiar with older broadcasts the accents and tone of people's voices being very like say chum are you bored of etc that was all done because by raising the register of your voice and enunciating very clearly you could make up for the fact that old microphones couldn't pick up low frequencies and the old recording equipment didn't pick up vocal transients which are like the the changes in your voice very well Mm. so We've got that hangover in audiobooks in Britain that people still use kind of BBC English very often when they're reading them, and boy, is it weary. Mm. Oh, my God. Anyway, all that aside, while Lyra's been off at the museum and so on and so forth, Will's been at the library trying to find more information about this expedition his dad was on. The useful thing the lawyer told him was that it was a matter of public record, so he's off to check public records. I kind of summarised this part in my notes because there's a lot of text for essentially a few main points. Mm. Um, The trip was sponsored by Oxford University's archaeological department, essentially, to Alaska. And they actually made it. The expedition reached the Alaskan Arctic Circle and a research station there. And following a severe storm, contact was lost with this research station. Rescue parties were dispatched, but nobody found them essentially. And he also finds in one sort of almost like obituary article a picture of him as a baby Mm. being held by his mother while she's sort of interviewed in the the role of the grieving widow. He wants more information, but he doesn't really want to stick around anywhere for too long in case someone is tracking him and finds him or notices him. He's very, very worried about being traced. And this is where I start to think about his subterfuge skills. So he kind of misdirects the lawyer to Nottingham. He doesn't want to stay in one place for too long. Mm. He uses social camouflage. Um, We've never really seen Will's character develop the way we have Lyra and seen her getting good at lying and subterfuge just to baffle the scholars. But I was wondering, do you think a lot of these skills come from his mum trying to evade the imaginary enemies 
I don't think so because I don't think given they are invisible enemies and that they're a result of kind of mental illness that there wouldn't be practical ways of evading them. So I think what it is more is him working out ways to evade social services and things. So um, he's taught himself. Yeah, I think he's gradually learned over time how to do things, how to avoid being seen by people or them being noticed and yeah, stuff. Fair enough. That was the only question I had on that. Because it felt to me a lot like some of the things he's doing might have been things his mum would do, like, oh, we can't stay here too long or the enemies will see us. Mm. Or, you know, her specific paranoia around her bank cards and how they could cut them off and trace her with them and things in previous chapters. I wondered if he pulled some of it from that. But maybe it's like you say, he's just gotten real good at not being noticed. Yeah. Um, So he ends up asking a librarian the address of the Institute of Archaeology because he wants to go and find out more about the actual expedition itself and that's the point that he does a quick in-depth lie about (laughs) school residential. Yeah, that he's in Oxford on a school trip and that's why he doesn't know where Oxford University's Mm. buildings are and that's why he's kind of in the library alone during school hours. It's a good Mm. lie. It is a good lie. It's a nice subterfuge segue back to Lyra as well, who's also doing some subterfuge at this point. Indeed, yeah. Um, She gets challenged by a porter as she enters the building where she's been told to go. And (laughs) she said it feels familiar, so... She's used to being challenged by university staff. (laughs) Yeah, basically. I think being in that environment and talking to someone who's like her subordinate, in her eyes anyway. Yeah. Um, And she can tell that Pan's enjoying himself as well. But she does a quick lie and uses the name of a scholar to say basically, oh, I'm visiting this person. Yeah, and she literally just read that name off of a pigeonhole behind the guy. Yeah. (laughs) Which is quick thinking. Yes, when he tries to kind of press her a bit further because she's like, oh, you know, I just need to tell him something. She uses um, her bland and vacuous docility. Yeah. Which is wonderful. Yeah. It's the grey man technique as well. Mm. That's what it's called by professional subversives. <laughs> Would that be the right word, words one? I don't, I don't know. know. I'm trying to say spies, special forces and stuff. Yeah. Like, be a boring person and no one will suspect you of anything. Yeah. And she's done that before, hasn't she, when mm. she was in Bolvanger when she yeah. first arrived as, as Lizzie Brooks. She kind of portrayed herself as being someone that was quite dull and stupid yeah. um, and didn't draw attention to herself. So she uses that again here. Yeah, so she gets, she gets let into the building and she has a look around and she thinks it's kind of plain compared to what she's used to with the other universities but she can also see that it's expensive mm. so well, she compares it to her oxford university yeah. doesn't she to jordan and it's interesting that what we would see as signs of modernity she sees as a weird mixture of poverty and opulence mm. so like bare walls is a sign of poverty but the walls are painted and that's rich stuff mm. And all the banisters on the staircase is a polished steel, which is mm. expensive, and it baffles her a bit. It does, yeah. The, the kind of just artistic, I guess, differences, the interior design differences. Mm. Now, I'm not really sure how she actually works out specifically where to go, because the text does outrightly say that the um, alethiometer hasn't told her who she needs to visit or where to go, just the building. So I'm not entirely sure how, but she comes to a door that says dark matter research unit 
Yeah. With R.I.P. underneath. Yeah. And scrawled on a note, yeah. direct to Lazarus, um, which is obviously a reference to the Lazarus of the Bible. Lazarus of Bethany, I believe it is, who was raised from the dead by Jesus. He, he was dead for four days, then Jesus resurrected him. So I guess this is an inference that this lab keeps getting shut down and resurrected or something mm. like that, that it's kind of on its last legs but keeps going. Um, anyway, Lyra enters... And this is where she meets Mary. Yay! <laughs> so Mary's a physicist. Yes. You know, a physicist specifically concerned with dark matter, which is why she's in the dark matter lab. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting as Lyra goes in that she describes all of the technology in the room, but my favourite thing that she describes is computer keyboards. Yes. An ivory tray covered in grubby tiles, and each yeah. one has a different letter of the alphabet engraved on it. Um, <laughs> makes just you for using a keyboard feel a bit more special doesn't it it does it's nice that something that we would see as mundane gets made interesting by lyra's description and i think he does a much better job of describing keyboards in this chapter than he did of describing omelets in the last one you just got something <laughs> really against omelet descriptions yeah pullman's omelet descriptions i find lacking and lyra's a little bit surprised to find that she's a woman yeah because a female scholar but at this point I guess it's everything here is weird enough that she just decides to go with it. Yeah, I think because there are female scholars in um, her Oxford, but she looks down on them. Yeah, they work in specific lesser colleges and things in her world. Yeah. But, you know, here's Mary, who appears to be important, so she'll just go with that. Yeah. Um, and as instructed, she is honest with Mary throughout the conversations that she's going to have, but she also tries to evade answering questions that she yeah. doesn't want to answer honestly, but can't answer dishonestly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a little bit of a Lyra conversation, but she's probably more truthful with her than she is with most adults. Yeah. She does start off by telling the woman her real name. Yeah. So that's... Well, she, Lyra Silvertong, you'll notice, which is her adopted name from the Bears. You will see that going forward, that she totally drops the Balakwa name and yeah. going on into the future books as well. She is called Lyra Silvertong. That is her name now. So, yeah. yeah. Um, we get a bit of a description of Mary. She's in her late 30s, as we said, short black hair, kind of red cheeks and uh, lab coat and jeans, which I thought gave her the impression of being someone that's quiet. She's, she's like a cool scientist because she's wearing her jeans and stuff. Most, most scientists I know, but don't. like it's not what people imagine scientists to be like. She's quite sort of... And yet one thing I think that's really good about her description is she is exactly like most scientists, most good ones anyway. I know her office is definitely described as being like most academics offices there's like books and papers everywhere like it's in complete disarray yeah um i'll tell you i'll tell you inside track from an academic you can tell if an academic's good at their job by two things one if they're wearing a suit they're either not good at their job or their job's not that critical and two if their office is tidy they're not busy enough (laughs) interesting yeah Mm. um yeah and then i wrote in big capital letters mary malone just to make it really clear to myself that that's who this is lyra asks mary straight away please tell me about dust unsurprisingly there's a bit of initial confusion about what lyra means by that and so lyra just blurts out yeah she just describes what dust means to her in her world yeah um 
And it's interesting, it almost feels like she's trying to translate what dust is into language that Mary will understand, but the frame of reference for Lyra is so alien to our world mm-hmm. that Mary's just got no hope, basically. Yeah, so she's like... Dust, you know, it accumulates more on children than adults. and Yeah, and just about how other characters in her story or the story of Northern Lights relate to what's she's trying to say but obviously mary has no clue who these people are so it's just a bit confusing but what she does mention is um the school with the holes in it yeah she says that there's dust on those yeah she also wants to know when the bronze age was because that school's got a lot of dust on it and mary says the bronze age was five thousand years ago and lyra says oh but that school's thirty-two thousand years old and that kind of shakes mary Mm. So Mary demands to know where she's from and who she is. Um, And Lyra basically sort of tells her the proper truth, that she's from a different world. Not before thinking about how difficult scholars can be. Yeah, not before that at all. There's kind of lots of really weird, disjointed conversations between them as Lyra blurts stuff out. And at some point even says that she's not saying it the way she'd planned to. She's particularly derailed by the fact that during her description of what's happened to her and where she's from, she refers to Azriel as her dad. And that seems to be the tipping point when she realises that what she's saying is not coming out the way she wanted Yeah, she's to. like, I'm getting this in the wrong order. Um, I suppose the problem is... Like I said, there's so much background detail to things and everything is so similar but so different that there's too much to tell. Mm. Basically, be like, hand her a copy of Northern Lights and be like... Read that. That's where I come from, Mary. Mary actually says at this point that she must be mad for listening to Lyra. And And I kind of think at the beginning she does sort of go along with it surprisingly well. All that really happens is Pullman keeps describing how red eyed and air quotes tired she appears and i kind of wonder if she's just stoned she's really fucking high interesting (laughs) but she sort of blabbles back at lyra as well and sort of is saying oh i've got so much to do why am i listening our funding's been pulled we're we're about to be shut down i haven't got time for this um Mm. she does say that this is the only place in the world to find out what lyra wants to know yeah and it she says that just is similar to something that Mary studies but then again she's interspersing this with other comments about other things so she's like I'm about to be shut down just do something similar to something I study I've got a week to write a proposal I'm tired and I can't deal with it yeah Lyra notices she's got the I Ching hanging on the wall yeah it's it's very discombobulated yeah. it works in the way it's written because you get the sense that these two extremely disorientated characters are just sort of tripping over each other but boy is it hard to describe yeah i probably should have done this in bullet points yeah i'm realizing like how <laughs> difficult it actually is to kind of make it make sense but fundamentally lyra tells mary the backstory of northern lights and mary tells lyra all about her lab and what it studies um yeah with with little bits in between one thing i did think was interesting was um lyra asks what the first unexpected thing that day was because mary says oh this is the second interesting thing to happen today so she mentions that a backer withdrew funding now knowing phil and writers in general that matters yes he that's not just in there because Mm. so who is that backer have we already met them? Dun dun dun. Dun bum bum bum. Yeah. Bum. So that's like one of those. Put a pin in that. I feel like we're probably going to hear about that again. Yeah. Mary makes coffee. Not sure you should be giving coffee to a kid. Yeah, that's generally frowned upon. 
Yeah. She does have some biscuits, though, so that's nice. I love a biscuit, man. Yeah. She's won um, me over with those imaginary <laughs> biscuits gets... in text form. She finally asks about dark matter anyway. We kind of stop hopping for a minute and they have this coffee. And, and then they talk about dark matter. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to kind of take this bit on? Since it's sciencey, and I know yeah, you like science. It's a, it's a minor science watch, but actually Pullman did a really decent job of synthesising the idea of dark matter. So it's what Mary's looking for. It's a real thing as well, which I'm sure quite a few listeners have probably heard the term dark matter and dark energy. Mary essentially says that it's something that can't be seen, and it's something that's poorly understood, but it must exist because basically there's not enough normal matter in the universe for physical systems to work properly. Mm. Uh, and that's basically it. That's what dark matter is. And in the real world, it all relates to, or it's understood to exist because of the laws of thermodynamics, which sort of state that the universe is a closed system. Mm. You can't create or destroy matter. You can't create or destroy energy ever since the Big Bang those laws have been established and fundamentally when you observe the universe and observe the matter in it and the way energy behaves in it it would hint that an awful lot of stuff is missing the stuff we can see can't possibly represent everything or the universe would basically fall apart mm. so that's where the term dark matter and dark energy come from is like this thing that must exist for the universe to exist but we can't see it but these days we kind of can it is measurable and mm. actually what mary's trying to do is measure it and she describes that she's got a device for measuring it mm -hmm. that essentially uses an electromagnetic field to isolate it, and then they can observe it. Yes. So Mary says that she thinks that dust and dark matter are an elementary particle that's hard to detect. Um, she explains that new detector that they've invented to look for it and say that they think they've found it, but it's strange. And she kind of seems to get embarrassed a lot when she's talking about dark matter mm. and things like that, because... Scientifically, it is embarrassing. Um, she refers to it as shadow particles. Mm -hmm. And she says they appear to be particles of consciousness, but that's too stupid to be true. Um, and this is kind of where original sin fits in. So Mary's got dark matter, which appears to be particles of consciousness. Lyra's got dust, which in her world is believed to be original sin. And then in the Bible, original sin comes from Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge mm. and essentially original sin is self-consciousness. It's humans becoming self-aware and making choices beyond the choices that God wanted them to make, covering their nudity and things like that. So that's kind of Phil's metaphorical link between the Bible and the worlds of his dark materials, essentially. Mm. She goes on then to say that Dark matter, shadow particles, dust, these are the names I'll be using interchangeably. Uh, they can communicate and mm. that you can't see it unless you're in the right state of mind. And she describes it in some detail. You have to be confident but relaxed. And you have to be at peace with kind of unknowing things. And essentially what she's describing is the state of mind Lyra has to get yeah. into to read the alethiometer. And I think Lyra picks up on that pretty quickly as well. Mary says they use a computer to communicate with dust, as I'm going to call yeah. it this time. And they call the computer the cave, which is named after Plato's cave. Mm -hmm. And here's a bit of philosophy that's unexplained. Plato's cave is, I guess you could call it a primitive thought experiment. 
in which Plato says, imagine that you live in a cave and for your entire life you basically only stay within that cave and face the back wall of it. Your only experience of the outside world or anything behind you for that matter would be shadows cast on the wall of the cave. So in your consciousness, would you believe that that was all of reality, that those shadows on the cave were reality rather than just projections of it? That's Plato's cave, essentially. They're kind of showing off a little bit. They're just like, we know. (laughs) Um, Anyway, they use this cave computer to talk to dust, and that would appear to be what Lyra does when she's consulting the alethiometer. So Mm. now we, we have an answer to the question from series one. Yeah. Which is, yeah. The alethiometer does run on dust, for sure. We also kind of find out that the shadow particles or the dust particles are particularly attracted to anything that's been touched by humans. Wow, I think it's more than touched, isn't it? It's, it's been... It's been it's been the object of human concentration and endeavour. Yeah. Because she sort of says, oh, if you get a bit of ivory, it won't have any dust. But if you get an ivory chess piece that's been carved, it'll attract dust. Yeah. So the reason why she was so shocked when Lyra mentioned the skull was because they'd kind of tested those out with yeah. the with the machine and everything. And they'd realised that there's kind of a cut-off point of about 30 to 40,000 years ago. Yeah, anything older than that, dust won't be attracted to. Yeah, and apparently that's because it's roughly around the time that modern humans appeared. Yeah. So if humans haven't had anything to do with it, dust's not interested. Yeah, exactly. Um, She also explains things like a piece of wood won't attract dust, but a ruler will. So anything that human consciousness has manipulated... Mm that's less than 40,000 years old you'll find dust on. Uh, The book dates itself a bit there because here's another science watch. Um, Archaeological records that have been found since the book was written would actually put the the rise of modern humanity anywhere between 100 and 200,000 years ago. But, you know. Yeah. Um, Lyra, obviously, all this clicks for her. She immediately realises that the cave computer is essentially Mary's version of an alethiometer and she wants Mm. to use it. She wants to talk to dust with it. Um, And Mary's reluctant. So Lyra shows her the alethiometer and she basically says, I think this does what your computer does. And I can prove it by telling you something that only you would know. And what is it that she tells her, Sarah? She says that she used to be a nun Mm -hmm. and that... She lost her faith, essentially, and they allowed her to leave. And this is one of the things I really like about Mary. I don't know why, but she just has this really clear path away from religion, I suppose. Um, And quite opposite ends as well. You don't get much more devout than a nun. Yeah, and you don't get much more undevout than a theoretical physicist. Yeah. For the most part, Part, anyway. (laughs) So, yeah, that's an interesting bit of reveal. And we find more about that later, later. But, um, yeah, for now, it's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, what I like about it is that this is another moment where Lyra says, like, or thinks to herself, things in this world are really different Mm. than in my world. Like, it's strongly implied that a nun wouldn't be allowed to leave the the nunnery (laughs) in Lyra's world. It's blood in, blood out. So it's it's another big difference between the level of control the magisterium yeah. has in her world versus the level of control that it has in our world. And I wonder whether that's also a little hint by Phil. Our world is clearly far more advanced than Lyra's. Is he indicating that church control 
has held back development in Lyra's world. Mm, potentially, I hadn't kind of considered that, but... Because, mm, I mean, we have that period in our own history where the church was really in control of everything, and it's called the Dark Ages. <laughs> and we basically just lived in complete ignorance for centuries, and then it ended and we had the Renaissance and people got more interested in science and art and things again, and it kind of birthed the modern world. So mm. that didn't happen in Lyra's world. They've sort of stayed in the Dark Ages, maybe. Um, anyway, this wins Mary over and she lets Lyra use the computer. Interestingly, the sound of its heatsink firing up when she switches it on reminds Lyra a lot of the severing machine in Bolvanger. Mm. It kind of really throws her for a loop, as yeah. they say. Um, it takes her a second to kind of calm down and Pan has to kind of help calm her and, you know, she yeah. feels quite anxious about it. So I think that's kind of interesting in that it shows... A trauma. Yeah, that these aren't just kind of beats in the story but they've also had effects on Lyra and they change how she is as she so, moves yeah, forward they become part of her character now yeah it's more nice characterization which is very characteristic of Pullman mm-hmm. mm. it also makes it harder for Lyra to concentrate on using the computer but she sort of gets around that by just trying to imagine that it's the alethiometer that she's using instead of a computer. Mm. Um, So she's hooked up to it by electrodes on the head in a similar fashion to an encephalograph or something like that. And she starts to kind of relax and get into her alethiometer state of mind. And she finds it hard at first, but she does succeed in communicating with the dust. And what's really interesting is that the computer display responds by showing her these patterns mm. and amazing images, which remind her of the northern lights. Yeah. And she sort of feels like she's on the brink of understanding what the lights mean. And Mary has never seen the computer respond this way before. And she sort of says it's the strongest response that she's ever seen. Lyra says, I think I can make it even better, basically. Um I can make it so that you can understand it. And this is quite a shock to Mary because she doesn't think that the dust is actually trying to communicate linguistically. She just thinks it's responding to human intent Mm. effectively, but doesn't realise that there might be language encoded in it. So Lyra tries to imagine the images on the alethiometer, almost trying to tell the dust how to speak to her. Yeah. And asks it, like, what would these people need to do in order to understand the shadow particles? And it responds by showing her alethiometer symbols back. And Mary's totally shook. Because, you know, this thing's gone from making pretty light patterns in response to people to now showing recognisable images. Yeah. All under the influence (laughs) of this one little girl. And she kind of tells Mary, you could translate these displays into some sort of text or language that you could understand, you know. And... She says that the dust is trying to tell her about something from the Far East that might help. And Mary clicks that basically the alethiometer is referring to the the I Ching that she's kind of got hung on the wall and realises that the I Ching must be something that people have used to communicate with dust in the past. Yeah. There's a few little bits, I think, that make me wonder in this chapter about free will and things. And the idea that Mary just chose the I Ching, because it was a nice pattern to have on the back of her wall, seems very coincidental. Yeah. And there's a few other, like, just little circumstances of sort of coinkydinks. But I think this goes back to stuff we've discussed a lot in the previous series, which is that if Lyra's got a destiny, 
in order for her to be able to fulfill it, there must be an entire cast of other people that have destinies which are simply there to support Lyra's success. Mm. And Mary would be an example of that. You know, why does Mary have the I Ching? Well, because it's going to be needed for this part of Lyra's destiny to work. Mm. So if someone's got a destiny and are the fated person, that means that loads of other people are fated to just kind of be extras in that person's destiny. I was going to say as well, like, what are the chances of there being sort of Japan schools in... I mean, no, it's a natural history museum, but still, of all the places she could have looked in, she finds the bit where that is and she finds those particular artefacts that are significant to herself and also, obviously, to Mary because of the fact that they tested out the machine with them and stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you pull it into a real-world example and try and think of somebody who might have had a fate in our world mm. um the only historical figure i can think of clearly that i <laughs> go sorry it's hitler all roads lead back to hitler i'm pretty sure that's mm. one of the rules of the internet right um so in order for hitler to do everything hitler did and mm-hmm. spark the second world war which then led to this great kind of peace period in europe and all the rest of it you've got to have a hitler that means that there's a load of people that are just fated to be killed by hitler but it also means that there's a load of people that are fated to get Hitler to where Hitler needs to be. Anyone who has a big destiny ultimately is essentially going to consume the lives of other people mm. whose lives are solely about getting them to their destined point. And that's one of the things I kind of dislike about destiny. Yeah. Because although everyone is important in that destined journey... It makes people like bit parts. It makes certain people stepping stones by yeah. nature. Um, and they would have no choice in that because otherwise the big destiny plan can't work. Yeah, interesting. And, and I think that's the thing. When people say everything happens for a reason, it's like, well, you'd better hope you're the pinnacle of the reason, otherwise you're just going to get crushed by whoever Yeah, like my, my reason might just be to die so that someone else is sad, so it, like makes them do something else because their destiny is important yeah you know your your suffering could literally just be there to help someone else succeed if destiny is a thing and i don't like that no i don't like that idea at all um i would say that's almost coded into religion the idea that people exist to serve somebody else's purpose god's purpose god's plan you know you can't change it it's immutable ineffable infallible all the other ends Mm -hmm. and if you're suffering, suck it up. That's what God wants. Yeah. And that's why I don't like destiny or religion. Who are you to say that God is wrong? That's the problem, isn't it? If God's real, I'm no one to say that. Mm. And yet say it, I will. Because if God's real, then the Hitler analogy still <laughs> just be replaced by a God analogy, <laughs> basically. So, talking of fate <laughs> and whatnot, uh, the cave... All the shadows, all the dust, tells Lyra that Mary has something important to do. Lyra is hearing a lot of this today, yeah. but other people are important as well as her. Lyra's quite fed up with that as well, yeah. I think. Mary seems a bit unsure, but kind of Lyra is quite adamant because she says, well, if the dust is saying it, then it must be true. It's always been yeah. true before. It's vitally important that Mary learns to communicate with the cave, essentially, with the dust. That's one of the yeah. big things that Lyra gets told. Yeah. 
Um, and at this point, Lyra sort of has to explain, like, I, I genuinely do come from another world, you know, that's that's why I've got an alethiometer and so on mm. and so forth. Um, and she really wants to know why the magisterium think that dust or shadow particles are evil. So, and yeah, she outrightly asks her in the end, so is, is it good or, or is it evil? And we get back to this embarrassment thing mm. again. Mary's embarrassed because good or evil is not particularly... It's not a scientific, scientific concern. No. And Mary became a scientist to avoid having to answer those kind of questions anymore. And, and she's kind of been led right back to the beginning. She's, yeah. she's fundamentally, she's uh, fled the church to be drawn right into the middle of a plot concerning the church entirely. Yeah. Um, and Lyra just reiterates that it's really important that she sticks with it and learns to speak to to shadow part tonight yeah tonight and she says it haughtily like a duchess as well which i thought was brilliant she's getting all high and mighty again yeah and she thinks it's the key to mary finding her funding and it kind of is i mean if somebody (laughs) said like by the way we can talk to dark matter you'd be fund yeah fund definitely maybe lyra is also good for um giving advice on research proposals yeah mary says to lyra if you come back tomorrow, I really want you to show our, our mystery funder what you can do She doesn't with the actually computer. say that. She just says, I want to show someone else. Well, but I, we can I assume. think it's the mystery funder. Um, Lyra kind of considers the danger for a moment and then just agrees. Yeah. I am like, red light warning, kids. Lyra wouldn't know, though. Yeah, but like immediately. I mean, we're drifting close to spoilers here as well. No, all I'm saying is, because you know... I think even if you've read this for the first time, you think, why is she so comfortable with showing someone else? She knows that Mary's important, obviously, but Will's already warned her, like, keep it low-key, like, stop telling everyone. Jeez. The problem is she's got the conflict of, like, generally she'd probably be more evasive in this situation, but the alethiometer has told her to be honest with Mary and maybe she's just too much in the mode of trusting Mary. Mary obviously might not intentionally be leading her into danger, but she's going to just put her faith in Mary because she's been told to be mm-hmm. honest with her. She's been told that she's really important and it really matters that she gets to learn to communicate with dust, shadow mm-hmm. particles, dark matter, all the names we're calling it now. Thanks, Phil. I really love how everything gets 10 names in these books. Um, and yeah, she wouldn't have any way of knowing whether this was risky or not to go back. Mm-hmm. As a more sensible person an adult we might be like well this just seems risky anyway but yeah. Lyra's not very sensible a that, lot of that the time. is true yeah I'm just like oh this is and don't forget it could just be her fate yeah that's kind of the end of that scene but I just wanted to take a little minute to talk about it because sure. it's one of the scenes that really sticks out I think of the whole series like in my head when I yeah. think about it and like I say I love Mary Malone and stuff and just kind of like why it's It's, well it's a pivotal moment in the story it's when we finally get confirmation that dark matter is dust that dust is conscious that the Mm. alethiometer is definitely kind of a conduit to talk to dust yeah it answers a load of questions it asks a load more this chapter in general is back to standard pullman pacing in that even though it's a long chapter a lot happens a lot gets moved forwards yeah lots of avenues get closed lots get opened 
And I think that that is maybe why it feels so significant. Also, it's where your favourite character comes in. Yeah. Why wouldn't you remember it? Yeah. I think, yeah, for me, it's that sense of wonder and excitement of, like, things are really moving now. And it's really taken it up a notch because we're in our world, but something... Magical. Yeah, seemingly magical is happening in this world too. Mm. Um, I think it's fascinating because we find out with the um, Alethia meter that it's actually the just talking via the alethiometer it's not just helping it to and obviously as you said before we've speculated a lot on whether or not the alethiometer is conscious and whether or not the alethiometer is somehow driven by dust and now we kind of know yes yeah but not it's not the alethiometer itself no but it's it's, the alethiometer is like a phone and what's on the other end of the phone line is conscious yeah um and but that opens up so many questions. Yeah. Like what is is dust God? Yeah. Etc. There's just yeah, it just opens everything up so wide, and then you've got the bit about Mary being a nun. You know, it's like, well, what? It's why? Just... Why is a Mary being a nun? Well, what? Because. Because I feel like I don't get that sense oh, of well, what. Because I'm really fascinated by like nuns and okay. um, oh, I'd say like people that are sort of like live in extreme religious ways. So like nuns, Amish people, um, Hasidic Jews, yeah. um, anyone who kind of their like their whole life is very wrapped up in that. Very pious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to go from having that deep sense of belief and and wanting to give your life to that to then deciding that actually. You not only do you not want to do that, but you also want to go and become, a, you know, a physicist. But I, I would say that if you take aside the object of the kind of purpose and belief, the, the level of purpose and belief required to be a theoretical physicist at Oxford University is probably the same or greater than what it would take to be a nun. Well, yeah, you but need that... to be, like, solely dedicated to it and, and massively capable but that's what's interesting about it of mm. in like turning from one thing to the other yeah. and and I like her as I've just always liked her as a character mm. because she's just quite Sarah down to fancies Mary Sarah can't fancies fancy Mary. a fictional character can you not well, I suppose you can contact us if you fancy a fictional character no judgments like I think you can fancy a fictional character I'm pretty sure as a kid I fancied Ripley from Alien <laughs> that's a fictional character but yeah, it's interesting that she sort of was dedicated to religion and then was dedicated to science. It seems really different, but I think a lot of particularly religious people would argue that what science is is just another form of religion. Just to play devil's advocate, people mm-hmm. tend to say, you know, you believe in science. Yeah. And scientists can argue all day that, fair enough, we believe it's true, but that's because we've kind of measured truth in an objective way. But for someone outside of it, they wouldn't see it that way. They'd probably see it no different to when someone reads the Bible and says that's how they know the Bible's true. What is truth? There's a question. I'm I'm not even going to attempt my answer at it. I was going to say, I'm sure we'll get there at some point. I think as we go on, the the conversation is only going to get deeper. (laughs) And more stoic. Mm. Yay for the listeners who are really going to enjoy us getting more and more serious. (laughs) This episode hopefully is not too strong of a hint of things to come. Um, But in the meantime, aside to Mary and her devotion to whatever she's devoted to, Will's been off finding experts of his own. He has met the archaeologist. It's been such an educational day for both of them. There's been museums, there's been libraries, there's been academics. There has, there's been nonces. (laughs) (laughs) 
typical part of your British school kids like trip. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Britain's just riddled with sex offenders. No, it's not. Uh, don't believe that. That's fake news. Anyway. So he's gone to the Archaeological Institute to try and find out more about the expedition. He says that he's the second person to ask about it in a month. Mm. And that the first person to come and see him was a journalist who wanted to know something about um, the missing persons aspect of it. So that's kind of interesting. He also, he explains what the party was after and what they were comprised of, doesn't he? Yeah, he says um, he says that it was the height of the Cold War when they vanished. And interestingly, Russians were building radars mm. across the Arctic. Can we blame the Russians for this? <laughs> But Will says he wants a bit more kind of specific info about the expedition. So, yeah, he uh, the guy tells him kind of how a research expedition works, like how it's put together. Yeah, joint funding. And stuff, yeah. We worked with the people. So, yeah, there was um, a preliminary survey. There was a physicist on the team who was looking at the aurora, Ooh. northern lights, um, and there were balloons with radio transmitters. So we've got a kind of idea that, the stuff going this, up. This is very much a parallel to Lyra's part, isn't mm. it? You've got a physicist interested in the aurora, that's Azrael. You've got balloons with radios in them, that's Lead Scores B. Who's the ex-marine professional explorer? Yorick. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, yeah. So Yorick is Yorick is uh, <laughs> He's the, an ex-marine. Uh, the ex-soldier um who's there to defend them. You've got the balloons, which is Lee. You've got the physicist who's interested in the Aurora. No, it's which the is... physicist who's got the balloons. Is so, it? Yeah. Oh good God. It's all just lost yeah. in the details anyway. Um obviously the ex-marine is Will's dad. And he's mm. there to defend them against polar bears. That's specifically mentioned. Yeah, and, and be good at quite, survival. Quite funny because they were like, "Oh, you need to watch out for polar bears," you know. Yeah. Uh-huh. In both worlds. Yeah. Eventually, uh, they stop hearing from them. Mm. They find the camp intact, but the men are all gone. Yeah, but the bears have eaten their food. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Will- so he he then talks more about the journalist. Will asks, mm. um, and he describes him. And it turns out that this journalist is one of the men that's been harassing Will and his mum. Yes. Not the one that Will killed, though, but one of the other ones. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Will's a bit nervy about that and decides he's going to beat it. Yeah, the archaeologist suddenly seems suspicious. And he, yeah. as he's leaving, he goes to make a phone call. So yeah. Will like, makes an extra quick exit. Dun, dun, dun. And he's actually trembling when he gets outside as he realises that this was one of... The men he's obviously been in there asking about his dad. Yeah, um, and he he kind of sits then and has a bit of a moment where he mm. thinks about the men, and that leads him to thinking about the guy he killed. And this is where we finally get the sort of bit of morality from a child. Um, he sort of struggles with the fact that he's killed someone and wrestles with it, but sort of rationalises it as it was self-defence and also defending my mum and I'm allowed to do that. And also my dad would have wanted me to do it and he thinks about his dad and Mm. how they used to play games about rescuing people and rescuing each other and helping each other. And at this point, I do feel like... I know you're going to joke about it because it's Will talking about killing people, but I feel like his reasons are sound He's not making excuses. No. He does feel guilt about it, but he's saying, like, 
these were the only options I had. I had to do it. He's very good at logically going through stuff in his mind. I'm not going to make a joke about it. I, th- I think it is a, a moment of much-needed effect on Will's character. It's his yeah. kind of redemption moment where the reality of what he's done hits him and we see that he does have a conscience and he probably isn't Ed Gain or Ted Bundy or any of the other people I've likened him to in the last three episodes. Thank God. Thank God. So it's him taking a slightly more realistic and hero-worthy figure, I would say, at this point in the book. And as Will's been wandering, he's found himself quite near the lawyer's office. Mm. And he's wondering whether he should just go ahead and go and see the lawyer to see if he can get even more information. His appetite for dad-related info has been whetted. But as he's toying with that concept, a car pulls up. And who does he see getting out of it but the very man that has been stalking him and his mum. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, he kind of says at that point, like, nowhere is safe. That's the point at which that ends. And the chapter ends there, yeah. For a long chapter, it was a lot more enjoyable, I feel. There's a lot in it. Like I said earlier, it's more of the standard Pullman pacing of, sure, these books are long, this chapter was long, but plenty happens. Mm. Um, And I think that that follows on from last chapter where we got the sense that we were back on the path. We'd finished all the recaps and we were just doing the news story and now we very much are and it's it's nice, it's good. I enjoyed that chapter. Yeah. Yeah. It feels quite nostalgic almost to be back in it. I'm feeling the excitement I get when I am reading a book that I really like. I think trying to recall bits of the chapter for the podcast has made me realise how simultaneously well but awkwardly written Lyra and Mary's first interaction is. Because as you read it, you really get drawn into this thing of you've got these two people from very different worlds with very different things on Mm. their minds clashing together and sort of feeling that each of them has a need to communicate but no kind of frame of reference or context within Mm. which to do it and it works well when you read it but boy when you try and recount it is it hard that's Mm. so much information encoded into what is actually quite a small part of the chapter yeah and it's really hard to explain that and I don't know whether that's testament to great writing skill on Phil's part or great writing luck (laughs) No, I think it's kind of skill on his part. I think he's he's written it to be kind of read, like you say, as that kind of confusing mesh of things coming together and mm. the conversation is a little bit non-linear and it goes all over the place. And you can make sense of it in your head because it's easier to sort of make things match up and kind of follow it, but well, trying I, to say it out loud is just a bit different. I think the voice of the narrator helps a lot in that scene Mm. because he describes why the conversation meanders Mm. and why people's attention is drawn to certain things and it really holds it together take that away and it just becomes what happened in this podcast episode which is us kind of saying boy it's chaos yeah this is sort of what they talk about yeah because i'm sure we probably did miss out a couple of bits here and there that were sort of you know important points in that conversation because So much happens, but yeah, it's so all over the place. So much is encoded into it. And I do think that it follows what we were saying earlier, that there's a more mature writing style in this book, which Mm. is clearly probably aimed at the fact that the audience for it would have matured somewhat by the time they'd read the first book. Yeah. But also at this point, you're quite a long way into the book, even though you're four chapters in. 
things need to start happening and this chapter very much gives you the sense that it's all about to explode and and everything is about to start happening at once almost and and that's that's very Pullman and I love it I love the fact that he doesn't tend to spend too long with nothing happening yeah I think one thing I have found from doing the kind of the slow chapter by chapter rather than just devouring books like I normally do is on the one hand it's made me really pay attention to things and pick details up but the sense of pacing can be sometimes lost it does feel a bit kind of fragmented and piecemeal yes um reading it that way rather than kind of going with kind of more organic breaks like when you're tired or you need to go to sleep because you've got work tomorrow stop reading that book you kind of can't get into it as much and feel that natural kind of there are natural stop points within the chapters where he chooses not to stop and i guess as a reader ordinarily you that's where you'd stop Mm. if you were ready to and it would work but when we're doing it for this we're trying to kind of get a solid chapter done so that it's easy to follow the podcast yeah. God, as easy as this podcast can be to follow which i'm assuming is not easy um but anyway all that aside do you want to get into the spoilers i can think of one that one spoiler that we god we've got mm. to talk about oh yeah i think so yeah so those of you that don't want to hear the spoilers thank you for joining us again as always you can hook up with us on social media feel free to rate and review in Mm. fact please do rate the podcast if you've enjoyed it yeah we we really want to get those ratings and we'll see you next time for those of you that are staying sarah who's charles boreal boreal boreal's the weird shadowy figure that's sort of been popping up everywhere i don't get how she doesn't recognize him i mean it's probably going to go into more detail when we go back through it again Mm. but i'm a bit like yeah, why doesn't she recognise him? Because she did meet him right at the beginning of Northern Lights slash Golden Compass at Coulter's party. The time has passed, but I wouldn't imagine he's visibly aged that much. So is he just a master of disguise? Maybe. Well, I mean, one thing we know, so he's calling himself Charles in our world, mm. Charles Latram, I believe it is, Sir Charles Latram, but he is in fact just Lord Carlo Boreal from Lyra's world. I believe he is also the person that's funding Mary's research. Yes. And he's also the person pulling the strings behind the mystery men stalking Will. Oh, he's, he's got his finger in all the pies. Yeah, that's right. He's he's like a really sort of a major antagonist in this book. He's yeah. he's the driving force behind a lot of the bad stuff that's going on in Will's world. It's kind of not surprising in that sense then that they've put more of a focus on him in the TV show and kind of built that character up early as to be this big... Well, because they bad. pulled things from this book into the first season of the show... You kind of need Boreal there for that to make sense because he's mm. he's the, the shot caller. And I think there's just moments where you're reading this book and you you know that's Boreal. And as a sort of second time, third time reading it through whatever, you, you're kind of shouting at Lyra like, run away, the weird man is Boreal, he's evil. And like to Will kind of... But, but one thing I had forgotten is... The pervy description of Boreal, where's mm. that come from? I don't know, because at first I thought I was reading into it and then I listened to you listening to the book and I heard it again and I was like, nope, still weird. Yeah, it is, and I, I legitimately think that he is trying to make the audience, an audience that would be aware of such things, feel like Boreal's a pervert, basically. Mm. I mean, you can't go into really specific detail about that sort of thing in a young adult book, but I think that that's Pullman's 
way of getting as close to basically saying this guy fancies children as you dare get in this kind of book. Mm. Why is he staring at her legs and her neck? Why does Pullman feel the need to say that? He's clearly trying to tell us something. Well, but he's extra evil because, you know, there's there's a few ways that you can make your evil character extra evil and making them a paedophile mm. is definitely up there. Yeah, it's grim as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's just like, oof. I'm not. I'm not sure he needed to be more evil than being someone no, that sends someone af- after stalking children and all the rest of it. But I mean, is this an allusion again to child abuse in the church? Potentially, yeah. But I don't think Boreal was necessarily directly connected to the church. He's not a no. He's. I suppose the problem is that in Lyra's world, the magisterium is very much the ruling class, and Boreal is an aristocrat. So he's got invested interest in the magisterium, even if he's not specifically a kind of contractor for the magisterium, if you like. He's part of that power system. Yeah. And I think that's the big spoiler in this chapter, and boy is it a big spoiler, is that that strange, shadowy, pervy figure is Boreal from Lyra's world. And that asks lots of questions. How did Boreal cross over? Did he cross through... The bridge that Will's been using. Did he make his own bridge? Exactly. I sense tiredness on your part. No, I was actually just thinking about did he come through a, a rock, as in the film Super Mario Bros. <laughs> <laughs> so the John Leguizamo and... Yeah, uh, which we watched fairly recently. Yeah. Um, that film's crazy. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think if you ignore the fact that it's a Mario film and just watch it as like a strange cyberpunk sci-fi film. That's quite enjoyable. It is really enjoyable. If you're too attached to what little lore there is in Super Mario, then you won't like it. But Mm. otherwise, it's well worth a look. Yeah, um, I assume he didn't jump into a piece of rock in a sewer pipe and find himself in Dinotopia or whatever it's called. (laughs) (laughs) But Boreal crossed over some. Somehow, and that's another big question, which isn't directly asked in this chapter, but it's a good place to ask it. Yeah. Um, Spoiler-wise for me, I guess more Mary stuff. Yeah. Like, did I say that I like Mary? Did I mention that? I yeah, I think, I think you might have mentioned that you like Mary's character. Mary yeah. the Serpent. Yes. And I think that's why I get excited about the religious stuff, because I know she's going to tell, like, some stories later on, and that, that's part of what enriches her character. And, yeah. Um, she's finally going to tell the story. Um, that she needs to sort of play the part of the serpent much later on. And I love a good story, Mm. you know? A story within a story, even better. Yes. Um, Stories about people, right? I love getting information out of people. I know. Yeah. (laughs) It's one of my favourite things to do. I have a knack for it. And my favourite thing to hear is about people's, like, tales of love and loss. So if you have a particularly sad story of heartbreak or, you know, something like that, I will be all ears... Eating it up with a spoon, you yeah, mawkish thing. Yeah, I will. <laughs> um, so Mary's story later on that's going to come, I love. You love the drama and the gossip of it. It's not even. It's not gossip. It's not that. It's just real feeling, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I think I, because I know that's all coming, I'm excited yeah. for it. I think you'd be a really good therapist. Yeah. And I think if there's anyone out there listening to Demon Cast, 
that would like to talk to Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely don't. Go and find a counsellor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, but if you do want to share your tales of, like, of woe and heartbreak and or just love, uh, then... Please, please feel free to share your most personal <laughs> life yeah, history. We can email it, so it's just me, if you need to vent. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I want to say people shouldn't do that, but then why shouldn't they if they want to? Yeah. I'm I like a little know. emotional sponge. I'll be like... Nom, nom, nom. Do you have any other spoilers? I feel like if I could remember the rest of the series as well as I thought I could, then I would. <laughs> you would if you could, but you can't, so is what you're saying. Yeah, basically. So you won't, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you for listening to that. Somewhat longer than recent episodes, but this was quite a deep chapter meaty serious and i feel like we tackled it with a very serious tone perhaps uncharacteristically so but sometimes it's warranted Mm -hmm. thank you for listening please join our discussion group send us emails yeah rate review all the usual we're actually just really lonely please talk to us yeah that's there's some truth to that statement hard times Mm. but thank you very much (laughs) yes thank you we love you Goodbye. Goodbye.